1: Hello, I'm John Sonia.
2: And I'm Griselda Murray-Brown.
1: And this is Everything Else, a new podcast from the Financial Times. We're into music, not markets, style, not stocks, and film, not finance.
2: On this episode, we'll hear from the incredible Nigerian-American artist, Indijeka Akunili-Crosby. She won a green card lottery when she was 16 and she moved to America. She'll tell us all about that and why her nude husband features quite so much in her work.
1: Later on, we'll speak to Mike Skopinka of the FT, who has just interviewed Trevor Noah, the South African stand-up comedian, and the man who recently replaced Jon Stewart on The Daily Show.
2: But before that, we'll be discussing anger. It's an emotion or a theme that has come to the fore this year. Social media is drowning in rage, politicians denounce political correctness, and students demand safe spaces from hatred.
1: Joining us is the journalist Helen Lewis, deputy editor of the New Statesman and a frequent contributor to the FT's comment pages, as is Pankaj Mishra, the Indian writer, essayist and author of the book Age of Anger, A History of the Present, which is out in January, published by Alan Lane.
2: In the book, Pankaj traces the origins of contemporary vitriol, ranging from Trump and nationalism to ISIS and online misogyny, to the 18th century, taking a long view on a current issue.
1: Helen Pankaj, hey, thanks for joining us.
2: Hello, hello, Helen. Um, I'm going to start with you. I wondered, do you think we are in fact becoming more angry, or is it just that our anger is sort of more voluble, more more visible?
0: I think if you look at it at all quantitatively, it's hard to make a case that people are now more angry than they ever were. I mean, I think I've subscribed to Stephen Pinker's philosophy, which is you know actually violence has gone enormously down, and even if you look in any kind of bigger historical sweep, certainly in in England, violent crime has been falling for a really long time. What I think has changed is that a small number of very very angry people can now dominate the debate in a way that it was, it was hard for them to do because we have these tools and the, the way that media works now particularly social media you know it allows somebody who's really really dedicated to have I guess what we call a kind of heckler's veto the, the
2: vast majority of online comments are left by a very small number of people so it gives us a sense that there may be rising anger generally but perhaps what it is in a sense is, is the same number of people who are now more uh, and they've all got a megaphone
0: yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: thanks to the internet
1: but then again, um, Trump's candidacy was compared to um, the comment section running for presidency, and now he is in fact president. So even though there are fewer people with this mouthpiece, we now, unfortunately, in my opinion, anyway, have essentially a troll who is leader of the free world. So that is <laughs> quite rare. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a reasonable analysis of him. And I think when we have these discussions about, oh, you can't say anything anymore. Well, Donald Trump provides the kind of biggest living rebuke to that thesis, because here is a man who smashed through every political convention. He said things in terms of race and in terms of gender that you would have said were completely verboten in polite society. And guess what? You know, on January 20th, he's heading to the White House.
1: And um, Pankaj, what about the idea that kind of politics is being drowned in anger at the moment? How do you see that playing out on not only on social media,
3: but Well, uh, I think Alan is right. The anger has been building up for for a long time and it has been manifest more uh, clearly in recent years because of, you know, social media, the fact that everyone has a little um, microphone. But I do think there's a political dimension to this. And we have seen that in the last couple of years, especially starting with the election of uh, Narendra Modi in India, which was also driven by social media, the man was a was really a impresario of, of social media, used very effectively. So obviously whatever you know Pinker might say about the levels of violence going down, I think he's talking about the fact that basically for large part of the 20th century, Europeans were killing each other in large numbers. And that stopped. That stopped after nineteen forty five. And that accounts for essentially a huge uh, fall in incidents of great wars um, around the world. And I think a lot of the anger you see today is a reaction to these entrenched forms of violence, whether it's inequality, uh, both in economic terms, social terms, a feeling of being left behind, <clears throat> not just by the rich, but also by the cultured, by the cultivated
2: It's interesting that people have been, since kind of Brexit and uh, Modi and uh, now Trump, that there has been kind of talk in some sort of quarters of of fascism again on the rise and that we're seeing history repeating itself. But in fact, in in the prologue to your book, you say that this isn't necessarily history repeating itself and things are not quite cyclical in a kind of simple sense. And that actually what we're seeing is something that's quite unique to our times.
3: The main difference is that uh, there's been a lot of loose talk, I think, about the 1930s, are we back in the 1930s and so on. The biggest difference between now and the 1930s is in the 1930s, you had massive states, uh, whether it's Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia, uh, basically trying to muster up a kind of collective power, You know, using the institutions of the state really very oppressively. This is something that is actually welled up from below. This is not the state. This is not the not a despotic leader. It's basically a whole lot of individuals who have been told that they're actually free. They're free to remake themselves in the marketplace, to be entrepreneurs, to kind of get ahead in the marketplace. And uh, they find themselves frustrated. And I think the truer historical analogies there are, the 1890s, you know, when people in France, in America, they all built democratic solidarity on the basis of racial exclusion, excluding immigrants.
1: Pankaj, you, you just used the word um, solidarity in the book. The term negative solidarity crops up quite a few times. Can you can you tell us about that as well? Well, this
3: is a phrase of Hannah Arendt, a very prescient theorist. phrase, yeah, which you use in the 1960s. But to say that, you know, what capitalism and technology have done is kind of brought people together... In a state of negative solidarity, um, you know previously solidarities were around organized around nation or it would be race, but capitalism and technology abolishes a lot of the old borders and brings people together very close to each other, so you know what happens in one part of the world immediately impacts the other
1: yeah Helen Ian hislop wrote a piece for your mm. magazine recently in which he said, "Why do we all get so irate when we 're when we disagree with someone and do you think social media screen culture, do you think that, you know, lends itself to that? that kind of reaction because you're you know you're very prominent on Twitter you presumably you see things <laughs> I've muted everyone now it's fine
0: um, <laughs> but that no, which is in itself a, a problem actually because I think that there is I think what Bankish was saying is, is really interesting about how people feel their identity very I mean we have this long argument in the wake of the US presidential election about how much identity should influence politics well this is not a, a, a new thing like you're saying that there's a lot of I think the US election is about white identity which is not something that really gets talked about all that often but what social media does and I do I do, subs- I do Believe this is does create kind of people in silos. So if you move from a model where most people make relationships and connections on a geographic basis, right? You live in a, a village or you live in a small town and you have to meet a, a variety of different people of different ages with different roles in life, uh, you know, very often very different outlooks to you. Yes people do cluster together so you'll find that people in cities end up much more left-wing for example whatever but you do you are going to meet much more people maybe more people who are different from you but on Facebook you're going to know people who are very much like you whose lives are very much like yours whose demographics reflect very much yours you know there is
2: not that kind of mixing that happens. And do you think this kind of privileging of of identity and kind of sentiment do you think that 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 can kind of make people more angry or at least feel that they can express that anger in a kind of place where people are are likely to share that view.
0: I think there's a there is, and this talks to what I was saying before about the very small number of people. Because if you, uh, you know, if you are in a kind of situation where you, people are using overtly racist epithets, that does signal very strongly to everyone else that they can do that and get away with it. You know, there is a kind of mm. broken windows theory of conversation, right? If you just have, if some people are there doing it, then more people then kind okay. of will see that that's yes, yeah, so that's something that they can do.
1: And what, what about just kind of on um, on a personal level? Do you think people are more angry on Twitter, Facebook these days? Because I mean, you know that there's such prevalence of kind of hateful hashtags, you know, white genocide, uh, repel the 19th, which was um, you know referring to the U.S. Constitution's 19th vote, century. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I know recently the four four big technology companies for the first time agreed to share information with each other to try and shut down these you know hashtags, but. You must come across them all the time, right?
0: There's been a really vexed attitude to free speech from Silicon Valley. And I think you do, it is useful in this term to talk about Silicon Valley because it's both a place and it's a kind of an, an ethos, a sort of libertarian ethos that I think is very much created by graduate, primarily white, primarily young men, right? Whose problems are not ones that's necessarily scaled to all of humanity. And I think that they worry about free speech in a very particular way. They, they mostly worry about, about free speech being restricted.
3: I, I completely agree. I mean, I think they've, they've come at it with this very narrow um, libertarian approach and just failed to take into account all the social and political implications of, you know, what they've been doing. Uh, which is essentially providing platforms for all kinds of toxic um, ideas and, 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 and ideologies. Um, so we need to, you know, rethink a lot of, those, lot of those issues. We need to do a lot of rethinking about free speech in general.
2: And sort of it's about who defines free
3: who speech. Who defines it, who defines it. And, you know, that old joke about freedom of the press is guaranteed to those who own one mm. uh, seems to be more and more, you know, uh, verified by the situation we are in.
2: I was, I was thinking about millennial activism and sort of campuses, and that's particularly, you know, been talking about sort of trigger warnings and safe spaces and the calls for these kind of things. And I'm wondering whether this sense that we don't hear as many kinds of voices as we did—do you think that there's a there's a danger that, particularly, that our younger generation is becoming kind of intolerant of views that it doesn't agree with, or, or perhaps that's a defence against people who are just trying to say hateful things. <laughs>
0: I think it's both. And the trouble is that it's entirely possible to say one thing or the other. It's everybody just draws their line in a different place. Yeah. I mean, the sort of trigger warnings thing is, is relatively confined to kind of liberal arts campuses, as far as I can see. You actually talk to a lot of academics who, who don't work, but they do worry about the idea that Difficult ideas are distressing to people and actually you can't create that kind of pedagogical space where, you know, you say this is somewhere where we're just going to talk about the Holocaust, for example, and that's a difficult subject to talk about. It's very upsetting, but that's
3: something that we have to do.
1: And what happens more generally when mutual respect in society seems to vanish somewhat?
3: Well, this is what we 're seeing today. I mean, I think this is the most disturbing phenomenon, you know more so than the kind of headline uh, news of trump 's victory or Marie le Pen doing well it 's the disappearance of civility from the public sphere. This is um, a lot of what your book touches on and yes, and in sort of you know the fact that if we cannot find a common space in which to discuss talk about you know how to make our societies more equal, more just, how to ensure rights for the disenfranchise uh, for the left behinds. If you cannot have a discussion about that, then the basic premise of democracy, and democracy is the defining project of the modern world, that is basically totally undermined. So where are, I mean, this is my question, you know, I don't think we are heading towards a third world war, but we're heading towards something that we haven't really, you know, seen before, which is essentially civil society disintegrating. We are sort of seeing the disappearance of um, sovereign authority of the nation state various other forms of authorities have kind of disappeared and it's now like you know guy with a twitter account against other guys with twitter accounts
1: how do you both stay calm pankaj it took you 45 minutes to travel one kilometer in a car
3: today that must have made you slightly angry no? <laughs> it did and then i became very self-aware and also realized that maybe in you know, a self-awareness is something that is actually missing
0: for me, it's really about about making sure that my offline life is as important to me as my online life, and and you know that's that is difficult. And uh, again, it speaks to the way that we live now. You know, it, you can't w-
1: meet w- people offline, though. You, <laughs> <laughs> One day, the dream.
0: You no, can but I mean, if you live in a city now and you've got a relative, a, a, a professional job, then you've got what maybe an hour long commute at either end of what is already a decently long work day. Actually, in that situation, it becomes much easier to c- to have all your primary interactions with your friends and your family online, and that's something that I think we probably need to, again, we need to rethink. Real life relationships, I thought, is is unfortunately more satisfying than than, uh, only living on the internet.
1: Twitter trolls, please take note.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is something perhaps, just, just to end, everything we've been talking about and all I've been reading about anger has, has felt very negative and I wonder actually is there anything that's kind of good about anger? Obviously violent protest has it at certain times throughout time been a kind of force for change and a force for good.
0: Being angry doesn't make us feel Something good. should
2: make you angry. I don't think that any of us
0: would would agree with that. I think maybe the argument that we're making is more about the fact that if you're angry about everything then everything has kind of equal value And yeah. and one of the things I think will be really important going forward is to keep a sense of anger and not accept things. You know, if you have a, a US president who d- does, as he looks to be, destroying protections that have been placed in for 200 years, then yes, you absolutely should be angry about that. You know, my, my feminism is driven entirely by anger that I don't want to accept the world as it is. But it's, there is unproductive and unproductive anger.
3: I think anger is liberating um, only if it leads to a profound feeling of shame and self-loathing which was by the way the case when I was coming in this taxi um, (laughs) exchange a sharp word with the taxi driver I was kind of overcome with self-hatred like you know I'm unloading my own frustration on this poor fellow who has been working long hours you know but I felt much better after that moment of self-loathing so I think if, if that is a dialectic then anger is okay
1: okay well Helen Nurse Pankaj Mishra thank you very much
2: Okay, next up, who is back from lunch?
1: Mike Spinker, the FT columnist, just had lunch with Trevor Noah in London. For anyone who doesn't know, and I know you do know him because you love him, uh, Trevor Noah is one of South Africa's biggest exports. He's the boy who grew up in a township and made it big in the US by hosting The Daily Show, which is one of the biggest or probably the most influential satirical news TV programme in America. And he succeeded Jon Stewart.
2: Cool. And so for those who don't know, Lunch with the FT is a long running interview slot with a really wide range of people. There are only two rules. The FT invites the interviewee out and the FT pays the bill.
1: Yep, they can pick anywhere and <laughs> we have to pay whatever whatever the final amount is. So um, Trevor's a really good subject because he has a background in comedy. He used to do loads of stand-up in Johannesburg. Um, and now he weighs in on kind of all the biggest political issues of the day as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, he just, had, he just interviewed Barack Obama this week in the White oh, House. Oh, that was so cool. It was an amazing interview. There was a Big really moment. lovely... Big moment, definitely. There was a lovely rapport between them.
1: Yeah, they were kind of like, they had a real brotherhood moment, didn't they?
2: Yeah, it was this lovely moment where um, Barack Obama touched Trevor on the arm and it was like, yeah,
1: it, yeah, it, it, felt, was, it was nice. felt big. Felt, it big. felt big and important.
2: It felt big and it felt sad. Anyway, okay, uh, let's give Mike a call.
4: app.
1: Hi, Mike. It's John from the FT. Hello, John. So where did Trevor take you?
4: So he took me to a fairly unpretentious Chinese restaurant in Soho called Bashan, which is a place that he he likes very much because it was uh, really where he started out in international comedy, the Soho Theater, the comedy store, places like that where he really first began to make a mark outside South Africa.
1: Okay, and what did you guys eat?
4: Uh, Well, he sort of told me he was going to eat all sorts of absolutely exotic food. Uh, in the end, I have to say, it was sort of fairly normal. He ate pig's trotters, because he said that reminded him of the kind of food he ate in South Africa. Uh, I had a uh, preserved duck's egg, which I thought was uh, a bit over-adventurous for me, and then uh, just a chicken dish. So uh, we ate, I think, fairly normal London Chinese food.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, and was he, was he funny? Was he as funny in person as he was on stage?
4: Uh, he was engaging, but um, like a lot of um, comedians a lot of very funny people he's actually quite serious in person he's a he's a deep reader and a deep thinker
1: oh why are comedians never funny um and also um what about his background you're from south africa as well so i guess you you spoke to him about that right
4: i did although i should say i, I left south africa a good number of years before he was born and um, he was born at a very interesting time he was born in south africa in the years before apartheid was breaking down And his background really forms the basis of his comedy. He's the son of a black South African mother and a white Swiss father. Uh, It was illegal for them to have him at the time, which is why his uh, comedy act and his new book are both called Born a Crime, because that's uh, exactly what he is.
1: Okay, Mike, sounds great. I look forward to the piece.
4: Okay. Thanks, Thanks. see you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Okay, next we're going to hear from Enderjeka Akunili Crosby, a painter who grew up in Nigeria and moved to the US when she was 16.
2: Yeah, I first came across her work at the Whitney Museum in New York in the summer. I think I told you, John, when I got back, I was really excited to see this painting Portals because I'd never seen any of her work before.
1: Yeah, you didn't stop banging on about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I looked her up and I found that actually she had a show that autumn at Victoria Mirror Gallery in London.
1: Yeah, so we went to it, and it was really cool. As you know, I got stuck in a lift with her and her sister on the way up to the exhibition, (laughs) and they were both arguing about who was the better dancer, and the sister insisted she was. Anyway, so, I digress. When you leave the lift, though, one thing you're really struck when you see all her work, especially multiple works in one big room, is how... Well, one, how vast they are, how colourful and vibrant they are, and also the way she plays with collage, layering kind of lots and lots of different types of images on top of each other.
2: Yeah, there are lots of photos that she's collected from Nigeria from lots of kind of fashion magazines and kind of gossip columns, her friends on Facebook, she takes pictures from them. They're not necessarily even events that she's been to, but she says in the interview, which we'll hear in a minute, that these are kind of scenes which are recognisable to her Mm. on some level.
1: When we entered that room, I was kind of struck by how colourful and vibrant they all are, but... Like her work is actually, a lot of it's quite serious, isn't it? She,
2: Yeah, she's dealing with some pretty big themes. I mean, yeah. they sort of look like these quite sort of gentle, quite quiet kind of domestic interior scenes, sometimes with no people in them, sometimes kind of family members sitting around. But actually they're really kind of getting to the heart of things like, you know, racial and gender politics, cultural appropriation. I think a sense of dislocation as well, like sort of where is home? What does that mean?
1: Mm. And it's quite unusual, isn't it, to see, so her husband, who is white, Um, is in some of her works and it's quite unusual to see kind of a naked white man kind of not dominated by or or
2: but yeah next to a a black woman with clothes on who's very much kind of in control of the situation yeah and she she talks about that i think really interestingly so yeah i mean she's great she puts black female experience center stage which is you know something that obviously has not happened in in art history
1: yeah especially not in you know You know, the idea of, like, the fusty art gallery. She totally turns that on its head, which is pretty pretty refreshing.
2: So here's Enderjeka Akaneely Crosby telling us her story in the studio.
5: In my work, I'm interested in capturing a life. I mean, if I had to put it simply, it's capturing a life I know and I've lived. Making work that depicted the life or... The stories of a cosmopolitan Nigerian woman, and even though it's using my life to explore it, it really is something that is global as people are making these jumps in cultures and space and disparate situations in their lives. The work is figurative, it's a hybrid of painting and drawing and printmaking. I try to um, marry or clash a lot of disparate elements together so there is a tension from different things coming together. I make plays between old and new, so you might have a room where there's an element in it either an object in the room or an architectural element that speaks. To noun and right next to it will be maybe a television or something within the television or something on the wall, like an electrical fixture that speaks to architecture in the 80s. So it really becomes this mismatch of not just different times, but also things coming from different places. So you might have objects from my grandmother's table in Nigeria sitting on a IKEA furniture from my apartment in Brooklyn. I was born in Enugu, which is a town in eastern Nigeria. It was a former coal town, and over the years, a lot of industry left it. So it was quite small, quite provincial. My mother had always wanted a very cosmopolitan life for her children, so she encouraged us all to go to boarding school in Lagos, even though it meant for me living home at 13 and being so far away from my parents and family. i only seen them a few times a year for holidays. And then she um, applied for the green card lottery for the whole family and she won it. So I moved to the United States when I was 16 And looking back now, and I think I should have been more scared than I was, I did move with my sister. We got an apartment by ourselves. I was 16, she was 17 in Philadelphia, and we were on our own. We paid our rents, our bills, we went shopping, we were taking classes at the community college, we were studying for the SATs, I mean, we lived by ourselves. So as big of a shock and a cultural change that was to move to the United States. The bigger shock or change for me was actually moving from my small town, just being this fresh-eyed, parochial 13-year-old girl, moving to a huge cosmopolitan city of Lagos. I think that feeds my work and still does. Starting my second year in grad school up until today, one of the more recent works I did, went back to the couple piece, has been this image of the Nigerian girl with the white American man. Based on my marriage, it was an easy in or an easy way for me to begin to explore what I was interested in. So I was using these two characters me and justin almost as a way to literally and figuratively like project all these other things onto being with justin was what cemented my connection to the united states in marrying him i became like truly american <music> In certain parts of the work, I have photographs transferred into the works, which is a printmaking process. I started collecting photographs when I was an undergrad, and they they really range from family pictures. So in the work, you'll see lots of photographs from my wedding in Nigeria, my brother's wedding, pictures I take whenever I go back home, which is once or twice every year. Um, But then you also have pictures from lookbooks of fashion designers I like. There are pictures from Nigerian society magazines. Something else I look for in the photographs are pictures that I think really capture what a fascinating space the country is. It's a very complicated space in that we used to be a British colony till 1960, and even though We're not anymore, and I spent my whole life in an independent Nigeria, you still see evidence of a British presence. And I mean, something like a lawyer still wear white wigs. So that's a kind of photograph I will use. Or like uh, some of our old money, not anymore, had um, an image of the queen on it and a stamp. So I would use imagery like that. But then something else that even further complicates it is that you begin to see the country moved from looking to the United Kingdom for cultural capital to looking to the United States as we start importing programming. And so you begin to see a lot of references to someone like, say, Muhammad Ali and things like that. Hip hop becomes a big deal. So in some of the social scenes I've done, it's a group of Nigerians, sometimes me with my family, sometimes it's a made-up group, but based on a coming together of my family members. And Justin is present in it, and he really stands out because he's the only non-Nigerian or non-person of color in the scene. And I think that started after Justin's first visit to Nigeria. There was a family meeting that really was like, what is your agenda? What is your plan? Are you going to marry her? You do know, like, we are very different from you. How will you make sure you respect our traditions? Um, and it got really intense very quickly. Justin would take me away and they'll never see me again and I'll be lost to the people. And I never felt that from when we're dating right up to our marriage up until now and I didn't think it was an either or situation and I felt that it was possible for me even though some people might think it's paradoxical to be a very proud American but also a very strong proud Nigerian Igbo woman and the two could simultaneous existence it happens I've always been interested in making images I wanted to see but I hadn't seen the male body is incredibly beautiful. Towards my final year at the Pennsylvania Academy was when I started doing drawings of Justin, um, either undressing or getting into bed or in various states of undress, lounging around the, the house which is really what people do at home. It's really shocking how much people walk around with very little clothes on. And I wanted that like intimate glimpse into someone else's life. And I think it was at that point that my interest in making something for my gaze, or the female gaze, but mostly my gaze was born. And that's when I really started thinking about the sensual, sexy drawings of Justin. I felt I was also interested in Images of a woman of color with a white man in a very loving, consensual relationship. And I feel if you look at the work, I'm very deliberate in the posing of the couples. The woman is always in a position that makes it clear to you that she has full agency and chooses to be in that situation. A quote I have on my desktop and really means a lot to me is from the cultural theorist judge Gerbner. And he said, representation in the fictional world signifies social existence and an absence means symbolic annihilation. And that is so powerful and true. That question of, do you really exist if you don't see yourself? As a Nigerian who had lived in the United States at that point for five years, there was that feeling of not mattering or just being of no significance because the, the representation wasn't there. I wanted to assert my existence. It, I wanted to feel like I mattered, that the place I came from mattered and it wasn't just this place that didn't contribute anything or didn't mean anything and that really was one of the reasons why I ultimately decided to be an artist so I felt like this is where there is urgency this is where I feel like I have something important to contribute
2: If you're in New York, definitely go and check out Enderjeka Akinili-Crosby's work, Portals, at the Whitney. It's on in a show called Human Interest until February.
1: You can also read an interview with her. She's one of FT Weekend Magazine's Woman of the Year, along with Theresa May, Simone Biles, and Bake Off star Mary Berry. Go to ft.com slash woman2016. To read Michael Skopinka's Lunch with the FT with Trevor Noah, also visit Life & Arts online.
2: Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonja. Our music is composed and produced by Fatim.
1: Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at GriseldaMB and at John Sonja, or you can email us at ft.com. You can subscribe to Everything Else on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the usual places, as well as at ft.com forward slash everythingelse.